Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and uh, raise your hand up, and we'll get you one of our white Bibles there at the back of the room. We're going to be on page 574. We're going to be closing out 1 Thessalonians. Uh, so we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to be picking it up there in verse uh, 23 going through 28. Um, and so we are going to be right here at the very end. Um, this is where, uh, I, like I said earlier, I've been anticipating us getting to. Uh, I've been looking forward to this um, just because there's just this sense of finality that comes along with actually getting to the end, as it were. So um, this is our 12th and final week of First Thessalonians. Um, most of our series around here at the BCM um, are normally about, uh, you know, about 11 or 12 weeks at a time. Um, and so we are coming to the end of it. Um, so if you got that... Uh, Turn or your Bible turn there. Go ahead and look at that. But I want to give us just a quick bit of reference as to where we have been so far. Um, I want to remind us that the reason why I wanted us to come to First Thessalonians this semester is because I've held this whole time that pound for pound, First Thessalonians is every bit as encouraging and joyous as the Book of Philippians in the New Testament. Philippians is kind of like the standard bearer. Um, for the New Testament of people running to it for encouragement. And what my contention has been is that reading through 1 Thessalonians and seeing exactly how Paul is encouraging the church um, is of great benefit to us. And so we can see that, that encouragement that comes along with uh, 1 Thessalonians. We've also seen the other theme of the return of Christ. I mean, that's like the, the subheading for our series here is the, the returning king. And so we're seeing that, but then we also see this last element that we're going to see come back again tonight is Paul has a concern that the church would be living out their faith. So those things that we read in uh, Colossians chapter 3, that we were to put on all these new um, elements of our life because of what Christ has done, all of that is going to get boiled down and concentrated here at the very end of this letter. And so, if you need to go back and look at any of these weeks, man, it's all online, it's on Spotify, I'm glad you have the ability to go back, and if you uh, uh, missed anything, hopefully you would take advantage of that. So, um, tonight, closing everything out. Last week, we looked at um, some of the final words of Paul where he just fired off a, a series of commands. We're going to see something similar to that, but this is what we're more uh, accustomed to when it comes to the end of one of Paul's letters. However, there's something really unique about how he does it tonight. So um, this is what I want to do. I want to read for us 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28, um, and then we'll dive into it from there. Let's pick it up in verse 23. This is what Paul says. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's really simple. Five, six verses here that we're, that we're looking at. And so here's the promise that I want to make for us tonight. As we have read this, if we closely look at it, if we just kind of see the major themes coming together, we're going to be able to see that these closing, letter, or closing words of this letter is really Paul just emphasizing the same themes that he's been hitting on the entire letter. He's really bringing our mind's eye right here to this central point of understanding um, this fellowship that we have and this family and the encouragement that we have being part of that, growing in our faith, and that we have, in fact, 
a good God who is faithful that we can trust. We're going to see all of those elements really coming together tonight. So my promise to you is that we will see just how those three key themes are boiled down in this section. So let me pray for us, and then we will dive into the text tonight. Father, I thank you that we are here at the end of uh, the book of First Thessalonians. God, I am just immediately thankful for uh, the countless number of scribes and the countless number of copyists over literal uh, millennia have uh, faithfully recorded and transcribed and transmitted one way or another, um, translated to us what it is that we have before us and that we know that we can trust this because you are a good God who has overseen this entire process, that you have superintended it. And so, Father, I thank you for the fact that we have such encouraging words here before us. Father, I thank you that you have rightly preserved your word so that we can truly understand it and that we have your Holy Spirit within us to be able to understand it even beyond what the uh, literary devices being used um, would point towards. But God, that we can see the greater meaning behind it because of what it is that you have given to us by your presence through the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I thank you for all of those things, and I pray that you would be honored by what we do tonight. And as is my custom, I would ask that you would pray for me as well as we crack open one last time, First Thessalonians, and just ask that you would pray that the things that I would say would be accurate and would be beneficial, and I would ask that you would do that for me now. one last time for this semester. We just thank you for being able to gather together. I thank you for these men and these women who have been with us this whole semester, for those who have joined us online, for those who have joined us throughout the semester here in person. God, I thank you for them. Um, But God, also, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to even deliver these things, uh, because I know that I am clearly out of my depth um, in being able to communicate um, totally what it is that Uh, these short verses would even have for us. So God, I ask for your help in being able to do that. Um, And it wouldn't be me speaking, but it would be you speaking through me, using preparation, yes, using uh, stories, yes, but more than anything, God, I pray, using your Holy Spirit to communicate what it is that you would have us to learn tonight. God, I pray that that would happen. I pray that it would happen so that you would receive the glory for it. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to attack this like we have over the semester um, fairly routinely. We're going to take a a verse at a time. We're going to explain it. We're going to read it. We're going to explain it. We're going to apply it. We're going to move to the next one, right? But here's the deal. Uh, One thing that I would promise to you, in addition to what I've already said, is that a lot of this is fairly simple. What my task tonight is really to remind us of how these things have already been spoken of in one way or another, generally throughout the letter, but also just to remind us also that we are able to rightly hear, to rightly apply, and to rightly be encouraged by the things that we actually see. In fact, that's kind of been Paul's whole MO this whole time in 1 Thessalonians. He has routinely said, hey, there's no reason for me to write to you about these things and then writes to them about the thing that he says that they have no need of being informed of. It's repetitious uh, teaching is good for us, and so we need to be reminded of these things. So in that vein, let's look at verse 23 one more time. 
This is a, uh, by the way, this is a benediction of sorts. This is kind of like the closing of the actual end of the letter, and this is how he begins it. He says, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole soul or spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing I want you to see is that the very first way he describes God is that he is the God of peace. I just want you to know that that's not some kind of peace. Um, Erene is the word in Greek. It's not some kind of Erene that he holds for himself, and that's just his peace that he gets to hold on to, he gets to enjoy. No, no, he's the God of peace, and he oversees it, and he bestows that to his children, which means he gives that peace to us. If you are a believer in Jesus, you can have this peace. In the middle of turmoil, in the middle of preparation for the end of the semester, in the middle of whatever craziness is going on in your life, you can have peace because if you're a believer in Jesus, your heavenly Father is the God of peace. Let me just say it another way. Maybe this will resonate with you. Um, God is not against you. He is for you. And let me just drive it home even more. Even when you are being lazy, Call it procrastination, but you're being lazy about some project, about some presentation, and you recognize fully that you should have done otherwise, and yet here you are. God is still for you in that moment. Now, does He want you to persist in sin? No. Let me say that clearly. He does not want you to persist in that, but He gives you grace. He gives you mercy in those in those very moments, He is not against you. He is for you. And the thing that we need to see about that with Him being the God of peace, like peace is not just something that you passively observe as happening around you. It is something you are meant to actively partake in. Right? I think a lot of times we conceive of peace as like, you know, stillness. Like, I don't know, like floating on in the water and just like being at rest or just laying on a couch. Like, that's not peace. That's not the way biblical peace works out. There is a sure rest that you know that you have and that can't be taken away from you. And that comes from God. And you are not meant to just passively enjoy it. You're meant to actively lay hold of it, which brings us to our first big point. God is the one who actively sanctifies us as we progress in holiness. Because what Paul says is that, now may the God of peace himself, may he himself, the God of peace, that one. May He sanctify you completely. Completely. That you would be sanctified and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. Now, th this enters into a really clear balance that we have to articulate. I have said here that God is actively the one who sanctifies us, but on two different occasions, we have said back in chapter uh, Three, and then also chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 5, verse 18, which we looked at last week, we have seen that God has said that it is His, or Paul has said that it is God's will that you would grow in sanctification, that you would grow in holiness. How is it that I can say that God actively sanctifies, and yet Paul has commanded us to do certain things to grow in sanctification? If you were here last semester, whenever we talked about the Holy Spirit, um, I believe it was like week 9 or 10 of that series, we talked about what sanctification means. It's growing and progressing in holiness, and we used the illustration. I'll just summarize it here. A lot of times we think of sanctification as though it is a 
uh, power boat or a speed boat. You're just in it, and God is the active one, and he does all the work, and you just sit there, and it happens upon you. Sometimes we think of sanctification as though it is this thing that it's like a canoe where you are actively the one driving it. You are the reason it goes anywhere it goes. All its successes and all of its failures are completely on you. Both of those illustrations are bad because they are not accurately depicting what sanctification looks like whenever we think about growing in holiness. The better illustration is like a sailboat. God is actively the one who is causing the wind to come and power that vessel, but you actively must catch the, the wind in your sails. Like You can't spill the wind from your sails. You actively have to participate in it. So I can rightly say that your sanctification is something that you must do. You must progress in it. But make no mistake, Paul clearly says that God, the Father, the God of peace, himself is the one who can completely sanctifies you. I think that that then leads us into this other element that we've talked about. So this growing in sanctification has been one of the themes that we've seen running through, especially chapters 4 and 5. But there's also this other theme that Paul is pulling together here as well. So we might ask the question, when is it that God will actively, completely, totally sanctify us? Well, what he says here in the verse is that we would be sanctified completely and that we may have our body kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So the second major theme that we see in these verses is he's already marrying, growing in holiness, and the return of Christ. Ultimately, when God will completely sanctify you and then when you will be completely blameless is when Christ returns a second time. Here's the way that I've always kind of thought about it, and I think it's really important for us to notice, is that right now in this present state, we are free, if you were a believer in Jesus, you are free from the power of sin. It no longer holds sway over your life, ultimately and presently. However, you are not free from the presence of sin. You yourself participate in sin volitionally, and you commit sins of commission. You commit sin. But then there is also sins of omission. There are things that you should have done and you didn't do. Uh, you should have done something and you didn't do it. That would be the sin, not sins you should have done. So there are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. And that's not even taken into account people around us that there is sin around us. You are not free from the presence of sin right now. But when Christ returns, not only will you be free from the power of sin, you will ultimately be free from the presence of sin as well. And that has been the encouraging note all along, is that when Christ returns, you are going to be wrapped up in glory that you couldn't comprehend prior to that. And so that's the encouragement for us. And Paul is already wrapping those two of the three major themes together right there. Now, one other thing that I do want to say here is that as we're talking about sanctification being this cooperative process, I do not want us to get hung up on the language of uh, spirit, soul, and body, right? Frankly, Paul's argument here is not that we are a trichotomy, that we as human beings are composed of three parts, or that we are a dichotomy, that we are composed of two parts, like a body and a soul or a spirit. That's not Paul's point. His point is that whatever we are, however Paul conceives of it, God is the one who actively, completely sanctifies us. So it's completely taking the spotlight off of us and putting it on God himself, who is the God of peace. 
Are you tracking with me there? So we're already seeing these themes coming in, the need for sanctification in our lives and the return of Christ is already present right here in the very first verse of our section tonight. We tracking with that? Cool. All right, let's drive on. Let's look at verse 24. Paul goes on to say in this benediction that he who calls you the God of peace, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Um, at this point, there's simply just this one thing I want to point out. We have the, uh, the hints of encouragement, but we have the sanctification theme and the um, return of Christ theme explicitly mentioned. Well, here in the second clause of this benediction, he brings out the third theme explicitly about encouragement, and that, that is that God himself is faithful, and he's going to bring this about. Well, he will surely do it. What is it? Well, the it is that he will completely, thoroughly sanctify us. He will be the one who will be able to keep us blameless and hold us fast until Christ returns. There is no ambiguity as to whether or not it might or might not happen. It is a surety. And so Paul throws it out there that God is absolutely going to do this. Here's the way I would say it, is that God is completely trustworthy. If you pick out nothing else from tonight, God is completely trustworthy. He has never said anything that we would rightly say, man, I don't know about that. Does that really seem like God? Even if you think about some of the wild things that Jesus said in the Gospels, even when you think about some of the wild stories in the Old Testament, we can clearly point to the fact that God has been um, completely and thoroughly consistent in who He is to Himself. He is completely trustworthy. Um, this is what one commentator said about this section. He said this, "...neither their sanctification," talking about the church at Thessalonica, "...neither their sanctification nor their being preserved blameless for the parousia, the return of Christ," is dependent on their own personal struggling for it. And let's make no mistake, there is personal struggle even captured here in 1 Thessalonians. Go read chapter 2 and 3 for me. There is clearly struggle. But he's saying is that all of these things don't depend on their own effort. It says instead, but it depends on their trusting the God who has already called them to himself. And he who has thus going to bring this to pass in their lives is the God who has done what He has begun. His point there is, if He started it, He will finish it. He is completely trustworthy. In the end, everything depends on the single reality that God is absolutely faithful. Uh, I answered a question at uh, my church a couple weeks ago, um, and it was really dependent upon this, uh, the conversation we were having is like, is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? And the answer that I gave, in short, is that God has in himself this attribute that we would call immutability. It means that he does not change. Okay? I would even take it a step further that it's not that he does not change, it's that he can not change. And what I went on to say is that, in fact, all theology that we have biblically rides on two precepts. One, that God cannot and does not change, and the second one is that we can. That God does not change. He is completely trustworthy. He is absolutely faithful. And that we, even in our failure, can come from someone who is being a sinner to someone who is experiencing grace and forgiveness. Because if we are also immutable, then we're hosed. If we cannot change 
If we cannot grow in holiness, if we cannot experience anything different than what we are born into, we are hosed. But the underlying principle that runs all the way through Scripture is that God is completely trustworthy and that the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of David, of all the prophets, all the way down to Jesus, that He is the one who promised to bless creation through that special family is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He did what He said He was going to do. And so for us tonight... What we need to see is that that promise of blessing comes through God's family. And God's family in the Old Testament is particularly Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their descendants. But what about these Thessalonian cats here? The majority of them are not Jewish. And yet, they are the family of God because they have trusted in Christ, the one who has brought about the the, the faithfulness of God by fulfilling His promises that He has made. And so, I would just say that the family that was evidenced in the first coming of Christ, whenever this family was made as the church, is ultimately going to be consummated when He comes back. Because He said that is what is going to happen. When we've seen the word parousia here in First Thessalonians, I think like nine or, uh, nine or ten times by my last count. This has been a big deal. And this is a sure thing that Christ will return. So here's the thing that we need to see. Is that as we think about how God is completely trustworthy, I want to frame this as clearly as I can. That this is really talking about a lot of things, but there are two points that I really want to highlight. He is absolutely faithful to save those whom have sought His face and repent of their sin and trust in His Son. Bottom line. He absolutely can be trusted that that will happen. Right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if, if we confess, if we get to this point where we recognize our own sinfulness and our need for Christ, you will be cleansed, you will be forgiven, you will be justified. That is a fact. God can absolutely be trusted with that notion. But also make no mistake, for those who have not trusted in Christ, who have refuse to recognize their sin and their need for Christ, He will judge. That is not me trying to be harsh. That is me trying to complete the rest of the picture by saying that God is faithful and that He will do what He said He would. Yeah, He will save, but He will also judge. I mean, even whenever we had that week where um, right before, right after spring break, I think it was right before, um, where we did that uh, breakdown of eschatology when we talked about what would happen at the end times. Like I, I pleaded with you guys to recognize that was not me trying to scare you with hell. That was me trying to open your eyes to the reality that this is what God said is going to happen. But let me just be as clear as I can be. The announcement of judgment in and of itself is a gracious act, and God wants you to hear that there is an opportunity to repent of sin, to trust in His Son, and be saved from the sure coming wrath when Christ returns a second time. If you've never had that moment, if you've never had that opportunity to respond to the gospel, man, I want you to be able to do that tonight. So whenever we get done here tonight, I'll be hanging out over here. Man, come talk with me. This is not something that we leave on the table and say, wow, that was interesting. I don't know if I agree, but cool. This is not the time for that. So God is completely trustworthy in everything that he says, unto salvation and also unto judgment. Don't forget that. Let's pick it up in verse 25. This is what Paul says. Brothers, 
Pray for us. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think, frankly, this is pretty simple, but um, prayer has been a pretty big theme in First Thessalonians. I haven't even highlighted it as one of the big three themes, but if you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 2, and then in chapter 2, verse 13, he explicitly mentions about how they have prayed, they being uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, um, have been praying for the church, and chiefly we know Paul was praying for them. And here... We've actually seen that in that section of chapter 1 all the way, uh, verse 2, all the way to chapter 2, verse 16 or 17, that whole section has been an, an extended thanksgiving and prayer. I mean, that's a huge chunk out of five chapters that's devoted to Paul talking about how he thanks God for them and prays for them. But here, he just requests that they would pray for him. Man, like just as Paul prayed for the Thessalonians that we see clearly in chapters 1 and 2, and the tone of that prayer is carried all the way out through the end of chapter 5, in the exact same way that Paul prayed for them, he said, hey, y'all should pray for me. Guys, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is partly connected to that notion of chapter 5, verse 12 that we looked at last week. Let's read it real quick. Uh, it says in chapter 5, verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. Well, he's in many ways talking about himself. How do you respect those who are in leadership over you? Pray for them. We spent, what, 15 minutes talking about that last week? We spent probably 30, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was, on lining out what your pastors actually do. Well, in this sense, that the pastor of this church is Paul, who's on the run down in Corinth right now because he got ran out of town. And so he says, just like I prayed for you, y'all pray for me. Don't miss the fact that Paul, the apostle, the missionary, the guy in the New Testament that a lot of us think about, says, I need y'all to pray for me. We should be praying for our spiritual leaders. We talked about that last week. If Paul needs prayer, so do you. So let me turn the tables on you guys. I have experienced over the last year, for whatever reason, um, during the pandemic, I feel as though a lot of people have recognized their need for personal prayer, for people to be praying for them. Not their own personal prayer to God, but other people to pray for them. They, they've actually recognized that that needs to be happening more frequently. But what I've also noticed is that people are less likely to actually ask people to pray for them for some reason. I don't know why, but I feel like a lot of students and adults, I mean, it's not just y'all, I'm talking about grown folks who have grandkids, have recognized that they have suffered over the pandemic this loss of a relationship, right? We talked about that in week two and three. They have suffered this loss of a relationship, and they have recognized that they need people to be praying for them, but yet they feel like they are imposing on other folks to actually ask them to pray for them. That is wild to me that we would all recognize that this is something that we desperately need, but because we recognize that we're all kind of in the same boat, well, man, I need prayer, and you know, so does Alex, and so I can't ask Alex to pray for me. Yeah, you can, dummy. How about you ask him to pray for you, and then you pray for him right there too. It is never imposing on a believer in Jesus to ask them to pray for you. Never. Never. I, I cannot express this enough. Find for me an example in Scripture where there is an example of someone who is a believer in Jesus and they go to someone and ask for prayer and the other guy's like, wrong time, man. This is just not a good time to be doing this. I haven't found it. 
It is never an imposition. It is never getting someone out of sorts to ask a believer in Jesus to pray for you. And if Paul needed prayer, you do too. That's a fact. So, what do you do with, with this as a result? How about you ask some folks to pray for you and not just like this general hand grenade prayer of like, man, I hope things go well. Pray that, you know, life is good next week. No. Give specifics. I'm struggling with this one sin. I'm struggling with being lazy. I don't know what to do with this relationship. I feel lonely. Why not ask someone to pray for you in that way? Will it take a little bit of vulnerability? Yes. Will it take you being willing to do that for them as well? Yeah. Then do it. Then do it. Which leads us into our next point. Let's look at verse 26. Paul says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And this is where people kind of like get weird about, oh man, what is, what's the holy kiss? What's going on here? Um, let me say this. We started off in weeks one and weeks two of this series talking about how this letter is incredibly encouraging because it's the church family, those who are together in Thessalonica. Um, Paul uses this word adelphoi. I don't have it up on the screen. Don't need to worry about it. In fact, you probably even have a marginal note down at the bottom of your, your Bible for the word brothers. Adelphoi means brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a grouping of men and women who are family, brothers and sisters. He uses the phrase or the word Adelphoi 14 times in five chapters. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 4, 2, 9, 2, 14, 2, 17, 3, 7, 4, 1, 4, 10, 4, 13, 5, 1, 5, 4, 5, 12, 5, 14, 5, 25, and 5, 26. 14 times. And for those of us who feel as though I can't impose on someone who's family to pray for us, Paul blows the doors off of it right here. We are family. Here's the point that I want to make. Familial connections run deep in God's family. And he phrases all of it by saying, greet all the brothers. Not some, not the ones you like, not the ones who prayed for you, not the ones that you're willing to pray for. He says, greet all the brothers with the holy kiss. So now let's get weird. What's the holy kiss? Here's the easiest way I know to describe it, man. This is the, uh, this is the culturally appropriate greeting for close friends and family members. For us here, uh, handshakes, high fives, side hugs, straight on hugs, whatever, minus COVID, right, with a mask. That's culturally appropriate, okay? Um, Whenever I was in Iraq, the second time, I did a lot of meetings with people out in the sector. Uh, so I would leave our base, and I would go meet with uh, Iraqis. I would sit in their home. I would drink tea. I'd eat food with them. Uh, one of my favorite stories is my boy, Sheikh Saad, who I'm going to talk about here in a moment, would always wait for us to get there before he would kill the goat, before he'd start cooking it, um, because he wanted us to know it was fresh. I mean, so he'd be waving at you and then reach down, and you know, it's great. Um, if you don't know this about uh, Arabs, they are very much a hot culture. And what I mean by that is they're very welcoming. If you're uh, in any way friendly towards them, they have a responsibility to welcome you into their home with whatever they can. And Sheikh Saad did that. And I, for whatever reason, me and Sheikh Saad just hit it off. Um, I mean, this dude told me the story about how he got captured by the Iranians in the Iraq-Iran war, not once, but twice, and the story. And it always ended by him going like this. 
because his nickname was the Fox. He always got captured, but he escaped. I mean, this dude, he had great stories. It was just fun to talk to, but like there was a connection. And Arabs, their culturally appropriate greeting is to kiss you. And I got to tell you guys, I wasn't down with doing the, the man kiss. Like that just wasn't my thing, right? So for like four or five months, I successfully avoided the man kiss. Um, and so whenever I would go to Sheikh Saad's house and we'd be meeting with whoever, I would always take my helmet off, take my rifle, leave it in the truck or whatever, and I would just be there. Might have my body armor on, I might not, but like I would just be there in as non-threatening garb as I could be. But I remember this one time, um, I had my vest and my helmet were sitting right next to me, and we were done with our meeting. We'd been there for a while, and so we all stand up, and like I'm putting my stuff on, I got my vest on, I strap it up, I grab my helmet, and I turn, and Sheikh Saad's right there. And this dude's got a smile, and he's got this, I mean, I can see it in my mind. He's got this beautiful mustache. Like, Arab dudes have the best mustaches. And he grabs me by the shoulders, and I'm like, oh, here we go. And he just like, mwah, mwah, just starts kissing me. And we sit there, and this dude kisses me a dozen times. The more you kiss, like, the closer friends you are. And that right then was like a major breakthrough for us. I didn't want it, to be clear, like, in that moment. But after I really like took stock of it, I was like, well, it's kind of dumb that I've been avoiding this this whole time. I mean, it's just, you know, a culturally appropriate man kiss. That's all it is. After that, I didn't have any problem with it. You know, like it got to the point where I just like anticipated not only is it going to be Sheikh Saad, but also Sheikh Saad's oldest son and maybe his nephew and then maybe the dude down the street, whatever, right? So the joke with me and Casey is I've kissed more men than my wife has. That's a fact, okay? Culturally appropriate Greetings for those who are deep friends and family members. The whole point to be made here is that this culturally appropriate greeting crosses way more barriers than you think. When it comes to us being willing to pray for one another, it's not because you just have a proximity to somebody. It's because you have a connection that is stronger than any other connection on earth with them. If they're a believer in Jesus, and you are too, you share all things in Christ. I have more in common with the believer in Thailand who I haven't met ever before. If he's a believer in Jesus, and so am I, I have more in common with him than I do with the dude who grew up down the street from me, whom I was best friends with all the way through high school, if he's not a believer. I'm not dictating that we're going to start the holy kiss here at the BCM. That's how you get lawsuits, Okay. But what I am saying is, we're going to reflect this. Not because Lee says so and because it's a good idea, but because we're commanded to greet each other as though you're actually family. You know why? Because you are. And if you're family, that means that you are partakers with every good thing that comes along with being part of the family. Because you know the God of peace. Are you tracking with that? in the middle of the chaotic nature that is the last couple of weeks of class, you can have a respite from all of that because you can have peace, and frankly, you can have that through the means by which God has ordained with His people praying for you, being with you, maybe giving you the holy kiss, I don't know, whatever. You tracking with me? You can actually participate in this. You know, I, I, I think about the classes that would have been, you know, the barriers culturally that would have been eradicated by this in Paul's day. 
Because, yeah, we're not talking about Jews and Gentiles. I'm sure there were some Jews who were there, but, I mean, we're mainly talking about a bunch of Romans there in Thessalonica. But think about slaves. We know for a fact there were a bunch of slaves in the early church. We also know a lot of their slave owners were there. Families. People from every walk of life. And all those barriers are eradicated because we share in Christ. Just think about that. Verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because I feel like it's fairly simple. Um, But don't confuse the simplicity of this text with the difficulty of doing it. Don't confuse the simplicity of what's said with the difficulty of actually doing what it says. Here we see verse 27, Paul slips out of the third person plural, the we. Right? Go back to chapter 1 real quick. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Like, we, we, we. Verse 27, I. And you can imagine Paul takes the pen. He's no longer dictating to probably Silvanus. He's no longer dictating to him what to write. He says, all right, cool. Greet each other with the holy kiss. Give me the pen. He grabs the pen. He says, I, with his own handwriting, starts writing. I put you under an oath to make sure this is read. What Paul is doing there is he's lending his authority to the spiritual leaders that we talked about last week and starting in chapter 5, verse 12. He's lending his authority and the weight of what he said to them so that they might be able to aptly apply what it is that Paul has told them to do. So here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's final command is for them to actually apply what he's teaching. And for us tonight, let's just look at that just just from tonight. Apply in your own life, however it works out, that God, your Father, the one whom you've been reconciled to, is the God of peace. Recognize that God, your Father, the God of peace, is the one who is going to sanctify you completely at the return of His Son, Christ. Apply that God is faithful and He will surely bring that about. Apply that we are to pray for one another. Apply that we are family. Whatever it is, don't confuse the simplicity of Paul saying, I put you under oath to make sure everyone else is reading this. Why? Because y'all need to be able to do it. Don't confuse the simplicity of the command with the difficulty of actually living it out. Because that's where most of us actually live. Whenever you're looking in James... um, Chapter 1, verse 22, I believe, he says, we're not supposed to be hearers of the Word, we're supposed to be doers of the Word. If you're the guy who hears exactly what God told you to do, and you recognize you're supposed to do it, and then don't go do it, you're like the dude who's been working outside all day long, you recognize you need to wash your face because you're nasty, you go look in the mirror to wash your face, and you see, hey, I got mud and stuff on my face, and then you're like, cool, and then leave without washing your face. That's what we're like. So what Paul says in his final command is, I put you under oath. Make sure you do not miss that this is an encouraging letter. Don't miss that this is a letter about the return of Christ. Don't miss that this is a letter about your sanctification. But also don't miss that you need to be doing something as a result. Commands in the Bible are never issued without the anticipation that you will do it. No matter how difficult that command may be. Are you tracking with me there? We've got to be doers of the Word and not just hearers of it. Because if so, we're like walking away from the mirror with mud on our face, and it's going to be evident to everyone. Let's wrap it up. Let's look at verse 28. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I think uh, a lot of us read the very beginning of letters and the very end of letters the same way. Like, that's the opportunity to shorten your daily reading that day because that's less you've got to worry about because there's not really anything worthwhile reading there. We should never look at the end and the beginning of letters as though they're formulaic. What instead, I want us to read this as something that is meant to be broad and frankly, all-encompassing for the letter. Because what Paul says there is that grace, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Here's the reason he uses that word. I think it's because grace is the only word that is broad enough to encompass everything God's done for you. It's the only word that's broad enough to include what he did for you in salvation. It's the only word that's broad enough to include how Christ changes everything from creating a family, from bringing about the return of Christ the second time at the parousia, and bringing about the sanctification that God has demanded of his people. It's the only word that's broad enough because in and of yourself, you can do none of those things. The family you have in and of yourself is the family you got. But when you experience the grace of Christ, you're brought into the family of God, which is expansive. When it's your own activity and making sure that you don't screw up in and of yourself, you will do nothing but make that worse. But when you experience the grace of Christ, you are now able to be sanctified completely. And when it comes to the hope of what life after your death will look like, in and of yourself, you are destined to judgment because that is exactly what Christ is going to do when he comes back the second time because God is absolutely faithful to do what he said. But when you experience the grace of Christ, your eternal destiny is completely changed. So, what I would say is that all of this activity from God towards us is grace. Don't read the word grace in the New Testament as though it's just a light, airy, kind of, you know, throwaway term that Paul or other writers would use. It is broad and all-encompassing for the activity that God has done on your behalf for your good and for His glory. Are you tracking with that? And when you read the last five or six verses of just 1 Thessalonians, you start to see that this whole letter has been constructed in such a way not just with literary depth, but also with theological depth and encouragement. So, let's return to that promise that I made. I promised us that if we read closely what these closing words of the letter were going to say, we would see that Paul is going to just emphasize those major themes, once again, of our need for sanctification, our need for encouragement and the return of Christ. All three of those things are wrapped up by the grace of God. The band's going to come up. And as they're coming up, I just want to give us a little bit last-minute instructions here. Man, if you're a believer in Jesus, what's your next steps? Find somebody that you know you need to pray for. Tell them you're going to pray for them. Tell them what you are going to pray for them, not just that you are. Tell them what you're going to pray for them. And then, frankly, tell them politely by asking, will you pray for me in this way? I think that's an easy first step for us. If there's some kind of reconciling that needs to happen among the family of God, then do that if you're a believer in Jesus. 
If you're not a believer in Jesus, what's your next steps? Man, I would just tell you, man, drop a line. If you're watching online with us, faith will get you. If you're in here in this room and you've never experienced that grace of God, come talk with me because whenever we are going without that grace, it is life-altering in a way that you cannot imagine. But on the other side of grace, having experienced it, we recognize all the benefits. So the band's going to lead us in a couple of songs. We're going to get to a point where I want us to celebrate what it is that God's doing in our lives and how we've seen how faithful He has been and that He is completely trustworthy. Man, if you have experienced that grace, stand and sing as though that actually means something. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for just even these simple verses that we've seen tonight in 1 Thessalonians. God, I pray that You would make much of Yourself even through the songs that we sing about what it is that Christ has accomplished for us, that He is the one that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and that that means something for us, and that that is Your grace. God, I pray that You would impress upon us how encompassing Your grace is, and that we would stand and sing as a result to encourage those around us to make much of You, and frankly, to enliven our own souls as we are worshiping You. So Father, I pray that you would make that happen among us, that you would give us the boldness to sing, even though we've got to wear masks. God, I pray that that wouldn't be something that hinders our true, authentic worship for the grace that we've experienced because of what Christ has done. God, I pray that you would make much of yourself, yourself and that you would cause us to respond in whatever way is most honoring to you. And I pray this in your son's name. You respond now.